You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary South. We exist to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission by seeing the lost redeemed, the redeemed matured, and the matured multiplied for the glory of Jesus Christ. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarysouth.com. At this time, if the toddlers need to head out, that's their, that's their cue right now. We're going to be opening up the Word of God to the book of Genesis here this morning. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. We're going to be looking at the origin of sin. If you need a Bible this morning, the ushers would love to bring you a Bible so that you have it in your hands. If you don't have a Bible at home, that is yours from us as a gift for you to keep. We want you to be in God's Word, His living Word the word that reveals faith that saves in Christ alone. And so we are in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. As we've been studying our foundations, we've been studying our beginnings as revealed through the book of Genesis. And as we have studied already, we've seen that from the very beginning, there is God. And there is only God. That in the beginning, God created the entire universe by the power of his word. That in just six days, God both formed and filled the earth to his perfection. He, he, he created, he formed the skies. He, he built the skies and the seas and, and the land and the universe with every living organism and every creature according to their kinds. We've also witnessed the creation of humanity, right? Created in the image and the likeness of God, both male and female. He created them. And then we, we also witness this establishment of this rhythm of work and rest on the seventh day. And then we see how Adam and Eve were called to be taking dominion over the earth and to be multiplying into the earth. And then we see through Adam's role in, in tending and keeping the garden, the woman was also given the role of, of helping Adam to do this. And this is a reflection of God's helping character himself. And then we witnessed the establishment of marriage last week, how marriage is about one man and one woman, one marriage for one life. This is a life of covenant loyalty, a life of covenant unity and fidelity, and the ultimate truth behind it all is that the purpose of marriage was all about the reality of Jesus Christ, that he is the bridegroom and that we are his bride, the church. It's all about the gospel. We've learned all, about all these amazing and foundational realities so graciously revealed to us from God in just the very first two chapters of Scripture. And then we get to chapter 3. Chapter 3 where everything changes. The chapter where because of our temptation and our folly, trust was traded for doubt, truth was traded for lies, Purity was traded for infidelity. Innocence was traded for guilt. Righteousness was traded for sin. Life was traded for death. And God's personal abiding presence was traded for a tragic, cursed separation. Friends, as we've been anticipating chapter 3, maybe we've been anticipating it rather reluctantly. But again, we need to be so thankful for the foundation of revelation given to us by God here in his word, that he didn't leave us in the darkness, but he shone the light of his gospel to us through his word, through Jesus Christ. And through it all, we're always going to see the foundation of the gospel. He's going to reveal the reason, ultimately, 
why we have the gospel in the first place. So we have to have Genesis chapter 3. We can't cut that out of our Bibles. It shows us our nature. It shows us our need. It shows us the reason that we have death. It shows us the reason that we have suffering and, and the brokenness we see all around us in this world because, because as we look around, we see that even as good as it all is, there's things that are not good. And as we look at ourselves, we look in the mirror and we even see as we're created in the image and likeness of God, there is, there is bad in us, there is sin in us. That although everything was created very good and pure and innocent, we, in Adam and Eve, we chose to embrace temptation, which then gave birth to sin, which then led to tragic consequences that we still experience to this day. So friends, if we want to understand what's going on here in this world, we need to understand how we got here. And so the first thing we need to understand when it comes to the origin of sin is that we need to understand the power of temptation. And that's what the Lord reveals to us here in Genesis 3 verses 1 to 8 today. Genesis 3 verses 1 to 8. Let me read this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to, to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Let's go to the Lord for help here this morning. Our Father, we come before you often unwilling, often unable. We come before you covered in the righteousness of Christ, filled with the strength of your spirit. We have your holy word open before us, and we ask for you to speak to us through your word. We pray that you would open our, our, our hearts to receive deep truths that we need to understand. Help us to see uh, ourselves and to see our folly and our sin, and help us also to see the greatest need ever, the gospel of Jesus Christ not only for salvation, but also how that applies every day in the believer's life. So I pray that you would be with our people, that you, your Holy Spirit, would be at work within us, uh, taking the word of God, illuminating it to our hearts, planting it deep within, that we may not sin against you. We love you, God. We thank you. We're so thankful that you actually speak to us through your word and that we can hear from you through your word. We're so thankful that you did not just leave us alone to figure it out, but that by your special revelation, you have given us the gospel, the gospel that saves, the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And we do pray for you to continue to work in this, this church, continue to grow us in our faith, continue to redeem us, continue to mature us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, we're to be a people who are aware of our sin, but if we're to be a people who are aware of the power of sin, we must also be a people who are aware of the power of temptation. We also need to be aware of the tactics of temptation, and we see this from the very beginning, that Satan is calculated, that he is crafty, as we're going to study, that temptation is real, that he has tactics of temptation that when followed through and embrace, lead to sin and death and separation from God. And so at the very beginning of this text, we're going to witness uh, the whispers of a serpent in the ears of an unsuspecting woman. The first point this morning is that temptation questions the very word of God. We have to understand always that temptation questions the very word of God. That's what we see here in the very beginning. Back to verse 1 of chapter 3, we see it says here, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now before we get rolling into the first tactic here, let's just pause and ask the begging question of who or what is this serpent? Where did this come from? What does Moses mean as he's writing this when he says that this serpent is crafty? I mean, what in the world is a serpent doing talking? When's the last time that we have come across a snake on the trail and it starts talking to us, right? Well, to be sure, the arrival of a serpent on the scene itself shouldn't have been surprising to Eve, as she would have known full well that God created, you know, back in chapter, chapter one, that God created every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, and that what God created was good, right? And so the mere presence of, of one of God's creatures in the garden wouldn't have caught her off guard, but what should have caught her off guard from the very beginning, or even startled her into some kind of initial suspicion, was the moment that this serpent opens his mouth and words come out. Right, as Eve would have known well that this attribute of speech and communication was an attribute that humans were created to, to share with God, the moment that this snake said anything should have been the moment of great suspicion. But nonetheless, in all of her innocence, for whatever reason, she misses the cues that something was awry, that something was wrong. Now what we see here and what the first audience would have seen is in this Im imagery, and for us as well in the, in the luxury of, of knowing the rest of the story already, is that this serpent represents evil. And evil has its source in Satan. And that in fact, this serpent is connected and controlled to Satan. Now although this text is an origin story of our sin, and not so much an origin story of Satan, as we look back to his arriving presence in the garden, that question of where he came from is a valid question. Right, if God created everything as good, what about this serpent that tempts Eve? Now, although we don't want to get too sidetracked here, friends, 
A good biblical theology teaches that Satan at one time was in fact one of God's angels created by God along with thousands of other angels. In fact, he was a leading angel who through pride, as alluded to in Isaiah chapter 14, he tried to ascend to the very throne of God and in doing so, he was cast out of heaven by God, cast down to earth, who then Jesus himself even testifies in Luke chapter 10, verse 18, he says himself, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. We also see more specifically in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, speaking about this as well. It says the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent, connection serpent, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Now, that's all that we really know about his origins. The how and when all of this took place is somewhat mysterious. God really doesn't reveal that to us. In fact, you, could, you can read the book by John Milton, Paradise Lost. It's focused on all of this, when all of this happened, some assumptions about that. It's a very interesting book. Go ahead and read that. But all that we really know right now in the text is that all of a sudden, right after man and women are created, a serpent is in the garden, and he's speaking. And the rest of the Bible refers to this tempting serpent as Satan or the devil. And so we see this serpent. And we see Moses here writing and he's describing him as more crafty, meaning he's more shrewd, he's, he's more cunning than any other beast that the Lord God had made. Which again is all satanic attributes in the scriptures. Cunning, shrewd, crafty. Throughout the scriptures, we see this being used to portray Satan. And then we hear here in the text what he says. We actually hear the actual words of this serpent. And friends, this is nothing but a direct attack on the very word of God. And friends, that's how it all starts when it comes to sin. That at the very core, temptation attacks the very word of God. And so what does the serpent say? He says to the woman, did God actually say? Or if you're, you're, you got an NIV here, here this morning, a New International Version, it says, did God really say? So did God really say, or did God actually say? And we see here that Satan is beginning his very first calculated, calculated attack on this earth by asking the woman the question, did God actually say? And then he goes on to say, did he, did he really say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? We see him questioning what God said. He questions the very word of God. And so what we see here in, in Satan's attack is that it's already so very fully loaded and shrewdly calculated. We're going to see that as we analyze his conversation here with Eve. You may, you may miss it the first time as you go through, but you have to look at what's going on, and it is so calculated. Just take a look here. The first way we see this here is that Satan starts by going to the woman first. Right? He doesn't go to Adam first and question Adam. No, we see him going to Eve, which means that Satan knows that the best way to upend what's happening here is to go against the very created order of God, right? As Adam himself was given the command directly from God, 
And as Adam was to also guard and tend the garden, the serpent goes around Adam and he begins his attack, his calculated attack with the woman. Secondly, we see that Satan doesn't refer here to God as the Lord God, right? We've been learning about that in chapter two, Yahweh Elohim, right? The covenant-keeping name of God as revealed in chapter two. No, rather we see here Satan revealing uh, his, his uh, comprehension of God is Elohim. This is a generic title for God, right? Uh, the same kind of word that was used for all kinds of other false gods, Satan regards God, our God, the only God, which is the g- generic word for God. Really what we see him doing here is underselling and undermining who God really is. And then thirdly, we see that as the serpent recalls the command that was given to Adam, we see that he rephrases the command given in order to suit his own desires. What we see here is that Satan twists the command just enough by putting in negative words. He puts in not and any rather than the positive words, surely in every tree that was in the original command. We see him already beginning to twist the word of God and he makes it sound negative, not in the way that it was meant to be uh, portrayed by the Lord himself. And so we see calculated steps within the word, within Satan's attack as he goes after the very word of God. And so we, what we see here in his temptation is that he's questioning God's word, he's disrupting God's revealed order, he's disrespecting God's revealed nature, and he's distorting God's revealed command. And friends, as the serpent suddenly and just unsuspectedly arrives on the stage, so shrewdly and craftily attacking God's word, you you can already see his attack even doing damage on Eve right away. If you look at verse 2, it says, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. So notice that like the serpent, the word that she uses for God is not the Lord God as it was in chapter 2, it's just God. She refers to God as just Elohim. And then, also when it comes to the tree, she doesn't really mention the significance of the tree being the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She just mentions it as being the tree in the, in the, in the center of the garden. And then with that, we see her add an extra layer to the co- commandment that God never gave, neither shall you touch it, right? We already see glimpses of how we add to God's law in the response of Eve, And then we also see she just kind of downplays the consequences by saying, lest you die, rather than the very word of God that he said, you shall surely die. So as the serpent so craftily uses every word and nuance and twist to his advantage, what we see here in just the very first section in in this power of temptation at work, we see the tactic of temptation calculated, smooth, craftily, questioning God's very word, and it's already doing its effect on Eve. Did God actually say? And friends, isn't that the ancient satanic problem that we all still face today? That first and foremost, God's very word is under attack when it comes to temptation and sin 
and in the fallen ways of the world. Right, this whole question, does, does the Bible really say that? Does the Bible really teach that? For example, does the Bible really teach that the world was created in six literal 24-hour days? Does the Bible really teach that earth is only thousands of years old rather than billions of years old? Does the Bible really teach that men and women are equal but yet play different roles in this world? Does the Bible really teach that man is male based on his biology and woman is female based on her biology? Does the Bible really condemn homosexuality and and sexual immorality and fornication and adultery? Does the Bible really say that Jesus is God, that he was truly born of a virgin, that he truly died for our sins, and that he was really raised from the dead? Does the Bible actually say that? When we question the word of God, we're really revealing the temptation of our own hearts, the temptation of this world. And friends, I would argue that the greatest problem the world is facing today is not the economy, it's not inflation, it's not the war, it's not the pandemic. No, the greatest problem that we are facing today is that the world and us question the very word of God. We question the living and active and powerful, sharper than any sword, word of God. And friends, as the serpent began it all from the very beginning, he and his dominions have continued down that path, and they have continued to tear down the word of God, questioning the word, undermining the word, disrespecting the word, twisting the word, right? Right up to this day. And friends, we have taken their bait, right? Hook, line, and sinker. I mean, just think about it for a minute here. Think about what's actually going on here with Eve. Like up to this point, all that Eve knows and all that she needed to know when it came to the word of God was that it was good, right? That it was by the word of God that he separated the light from the darkness, that it was by the word of God that he created the land and the sea, that God spoke the sun, moon, and all the universe into existence, and that it was by his voice that he filled the earth with birds and fish and animals, and then us, his people, and that all of it, according to his word, as he speaks his word, is very good, right? And that even though there's just one prohibition, of just one tree in the garden, even in that, what God was speaking was good. But then just in a few whispers, in just a moment of crafty questioning and rewording and twisting from one serpent and then a willing, listening ear, you can see Eve's perspective beginning to shift. That although God is the one who determines what is good, and as he is the judge of what's right, she is now beginning to believe that she's the one who gets to determine what is good or not, what is right or wrong. And friends, this is the universal problem that we all face as we are confronted with the very word of God in this world. We need to ask ourselves, do we believe it fully? Do we trust it completely? As God is the creator and as he determines what is good or not, do we have the freedom to second guess God? Do we get to be the judge about what he revealed is true? 
Friends, the moment that we begin to question God's word is the moment we begin to join Satan in the war against God. It's the moment that we begin to join Satan in his war against God. As we think about the first audience receiving this, as we think about the Israelites in the wilderness with Moses, remember, they were just rescued from a land of false gods. They were just rescued from a land that was full of rampant immorality. And as they are heading to the land of promise that is going to be full of more false gods and more rampant immorality, what they needed most as they were heading to that land was to hold fast to the very word of God. Right? As, as, as Moses was leading them and he's up in the mountaintops, he receives the law from God and the people's response is to believe it for all it's worth and to obey it for all of its authority as if their lives and their eternity depended on it, because it does. And friends, it still does today. Friends, as we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in in Jesus Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, it's all according to what alone? It's all according to Scripture alone. Right, Romans 10, so faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. As Moses so clearly taught God's people as well in Deuteronomy 8.3, he wrote in reference to the manna and the complaining, man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your life, your eternity is dependent on the very word of God. What are we doing questioning it? Friends, don't listen to the words of Satan, don't, lisper, don't listen to the whispers uh, in your ear, questioning the word of God. No, our, res- our response needs to be to hold fast true to the true word of God. We're not even to entertain a thought of questioning its veracity, right? Because if God truly spoke, we can truly trust his word. The moment that we begin to question God's word is the moment again that we begin to join Satan in his war against God. And if we do that, it's all downhill from there. So what happens next in in the story here? Well, as temptation questions the very word of God, what we see here in verses four to five is that temptation doubts the very integrity of God. Verse four, but the serpent said to the woman... And this is, you know, in response to her answer, lest we die. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Right? As Satan's first question was already beginning to fracture Eve's faith in the word of God, what we see now is that um, she still, for the most part, answers the serpent truthfully about the tree, Right? As Satan hates God and hates uh, the truth, he then directly contradicts the very truth of God. He says to Eve, or better yet, he lies to Eve by responding so blatantly, you will not surely die. Even though Satan knows full well that they will surely die if they disobey God. Friends, he just boldface lies and he touts to Eve that she will not surely die. They will not surely die. Friends, if anyone knows the truth of God, it is Satan. 
If anyone knows exactly what God says, it's Satan. Friends, Satan knows the word and the character of God far better than any of us. As Satan was once an angel of God, in fact, a leading angel of God, he knows all about God. He knows that God is a God of truth. He knows the very word of God. He knows that the word of God proves true. He knows that God cannot lie. He knows that God can only tell the truth. But out of such pride, Satan hates the very person of God. Therefore, Satan hates the truth of God. Therefore, Satan hates the word of God. Every chance Satan gets, he is going to lie about God's truth. And he does it here by saying, you will not surely die. Friends, that was a lie born in the very pit of hell, in the very heart of hate. Because, friends, this is who Satan is. As Jesus himself said about Satan in John 8, 44, Jesus says he was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So friends, don't be naive when it comes to Satan and his demons. Their whole mode of operation is anti-truth. Their whole plan of attack is to lie about what they know is true. James says in James 2.19 that even the demons believe and they shudder. They know the truth. They know that Jesus is coming back to destroy them. They know what God says is true. They know that their days are numbered. And so their plan of attack all the more is to attack the truth with lies. So to Eve, she hears... In light of all that she knows to be true, she hears for the very first time someone contradicting God, contradicting the truth. It's like Satan is selling or is saying, like, you really believe him? Like, if you really believe that, you're stupid. Right? You're not going to die. And friends, what we see going on here is that as Satan so blatantly lies to Eve, what he's actually doing is insinuating that God himself is lying. What he's insinuating here is that God is not telling the truth, that God is a liar. And then as the text goes on, he also claims to have some kind of like inside knowledge, some kind of juicy inside track into the mind of God, that somehow Satan knows the mind of God and the motivations of God behind it all. He says, you will not surely die, for God knows, and listen carefully, Listen carefully, he's claiming right here to know the mind of God. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What Satan is ultimately saying to Eve is that God has lied to you. God is holding out on you. He's holding back something so much greater. He's, he's holding you back. He doesn't want you to be like him. That's the ultimate reason why he's forbidding you to eat of the tree. Not because you will surely die. No, he's holding you back because when you eat, your eyes are going to be finally open to what's better, what's best, and you're going to finally gain the knowledge of good and evil, right? The real knowledge of God. And when you truly see and you truly know, then you will be just like him. Basically, you will be God. 
And God surely doesn't want that, according to Satan, right? Therefore, God must be lying to you. He's keeping you from the best thing ever. And friends, that's what temptation does. Temptation doubts the very integrity of God. I mean, just think about it when it comes to being confronted with temptation, that when what what we really want runs smack dab against what God clearly forbids, we're tempted to think the same thing. Like, God, what are you, why are you keeping this from me? Why are you holding me back? Why can't I do this thing? It looks good in my eyes. Why can't I just take that food from the grocery store? I'm hungry. Why can't I just cheat a little bit on my test, right? If I can get into the right schools, it's going to make my parents happy. Why can't I sleep with my girlfriend? I love her. I'm committed to her. Why can't I just add some extra work hours to my time card in order to pad my paycheck? Why can't I leave something out on my tax return? Right? My boss has lots of money. The government is corrupt. My family really needs it. Right? This is for their good. Why would you forbid that, God? How about this? Love is love, God. What does it matter if it's between a woman and a woman and a man and a man? Love is love. Don't you want me to be loved? Why are you forbidding these good things from me? And then it surely doesn't help when the lies are being espoused and directly contradicted, just like Satan just throws around these lies so haphazardly. We see this in our world everywhere. right? Whatever makes you feel good, do it. If it feels right, then it must be right. What's true for, true, true for you is true for you. Reject God's truth. That's just an old, antiquated fable written by men who want to suppress and control you. That book is full of errors and mistakes. Don't believe it. No, we know a lot more today, right? We have higher criticism. We have greater intellect today. That old stuff is just hogwash. That old stuff needs to be rejected. No, follow the science. Science is where you're going to find the truth. That's where you're going to find out that all of this just came by chance. Everything just sprang from nothing, all on its own. Let's just keep sprinkling billions and billions of years to make something so unbelievable become somewhat believable. Follow the science even when it conflicts with the truth. For example, that a baby inside the womb is just a collection of cells that can be killed without calling it murder. That gender is not determined by the truth of biology. That boys can become girls and girls can become boys, all because of the advancement of science. I just want to be happy, God. Why are you keeping me from that? And friends, that is one of the most pernicious lies that Satan wants to plant in our hearts. That God is holding something back from you. That he is holding something good from you. And that his motivation for doing so is not our good, but it's for some other reason. Now, I don't know the particular flavor of temptation you may be experiencing in all of this. What good thing that you think God may be holding back from you. But what I do know is that God always knows what is right 
He always knows what is best for us. It may not look like it in the moment. It may not look like it from our perspective at times, but God knows it all, right? He knows the beginning from the end. He's working out all things together for our good. He is the giver of all good and perfect gifts, that's for sure. But with that, he has also, by his good grace, given us clear boundaries. He has given us clear commands, right? Not to keep us from something good, but to keep us to something good to what his will is for us, to what his design is for us, to what is good and acceptable and perfect. Friends, his commands are always good. Psalm 19, 7 to 11, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, Rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. And moreover, by them is your servant warned. And listen carefully, in keeping them there is great Reward. God's command is always good. The Lord is not holding anything back from Eve that is good. The Lord is not holding anything back from you that is good. And so we need to be aware that in temptation, we're going to be tempted to doubt the very integrity of God. So we see temptation questioning the word of God and then temptation doubting the integrity of God. And then as we witness the effects of this temptation on Eve, we're also going to see that temptation targets the very desires of the heart. Verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Friends, temptation powerfully targets our natural inclinations. It targets our natural desires. And what we see here in Eve and then also with Adam is that what once was rejected as forbidden, what once was not good according to God, is now seen as good in the eyes of Eve. It says that she saw that the tree was good for food. And not only was it good for food, now all of a sudden she has an intense craving for the fruit of the tree. Right? Instead of the thought of eating that fruit as being despised, now all of a sudden that fruit is delightful to her. Right? Not just in the sense of it tasting good, but for the very reasons that Satan lied about to her. Right? She desired to have her eyes opened. She wanted to have that secret knowledge of good and evil. She wanted ultimately to be like God. She was believing that God was lying all along to her and Adam, that, they, that he was keeping something good back. And then she was believing the, the very words of Satan, the very lies, that she would not die. They would not surely die. Friends, when, it, when we choose to not believe the truth of God, and then when we, when we choose instead to believe the voice of temptation, 
we begin to see things differently. We begin to see that what is bad is actually now good. We begin to see that what is wrong is right. We begin to see that what God despises is now something that we should be delighting in. We, we begin to see that what should be rejected is now to be desired. Right? This is how temptation works when it's believed. It flips everything upside down. When you ever think of that old, old head, heart, hand analogy at work, right? And as Satan is the most well-versed in the word of God, as he is the most studied person when it comes to humanity, he knows our very weakness. And the whole pattern of temptation, as we've just witnessed through Adam and Eve's downfall, it has a path of least resistance, and the path of least resistance is to start with our heads, right? That as the head is the epicenter of logic and reasoning, as God's people are to be a people who are renewing our minds, right, in the knowledge of our creator, Satan's entry point into the head is the first place of entry towards the heart. And that's why we see him attacking the very word of God first. This is the word of God that we are to be meditating upon. This is the word of God that we are to be using to shape and fashion our thoughts and our knowledge. It all happens in the head, in the mind. And if you can get to the head, then you can have access to the heart. And the heart is where the desires belong. And that's what we see going on here. All of a sudden, after Eve begins to fall for Satan's questions and lies, now her heart is beginning to be enticed. And she's also being enticed by her own innate, natural desire. Friends, Satan cannot make you sin. We can't use that old adage, right? The devil made me do it. No, sin is always our choice. He tempts, but we choose whether or not we believe the lie or not. And we choose also whether or not to follow through with believing it, which is to commit the sin. Right, as James 1.14 says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Friends, Satan knows us like no one else. He studies us. He knows our very carnal and natural desires. And what he does in temptation is to draw out what's already in the heart. Right, as John Owen said, temptations and occasions put nothing into man, but only draw out what was in him before. Friends, Satan knew that if he planted seeds of doubt in the mind of Eve, then Eve's natural desire would begin to bubble to the surface, right? From the head directly to the heart, to the point that her desires are now changed and she no longer desires what God wants, but really what she wants and what we want is the desire to be like God, making our own decisions, choosing our own way, determining for ourselves what is good. And then ever so tragically, we see her follow through with the final act, right? She saw, she desired, she took, and then she ate, and then she gave some to her husband. But men, in that you are not innocent here. The text says, she also gave some to her husband who was with her. 
Right? He's there. She gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Ladies, if you've ever thought that your husband was passive, here you go. This is where it comes from. As the woman, it seems, is all alone in what she's doing with the snake, the text here says that along with her is her husband. She's talking with the snake, she's making decisions, but he's on standby. As the devil is tempting and deceiving his very wife, what's he doing? In fact, we could ask the question even why didn't Adam step in sooner? Why was the snake in the garden to begin with? Adam was called to work it and to keep it, right? That's guarding the garden. So men, we're not off the hook here. This is a picture of the fall of humanity. In fact, even as Paul says about the man, he says in 1 Timothy 2.14, he says, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Right? As, as we men can be tempted to look at this and say, well, see, ladies, right? It was, it was you. Take careful note, guys. Paul says here the woman was deceived. But it doesn't say that Adam was deceived. It said, although the woman fell for the tactics of the enemy, it seems Adam here knew full well what he was doing. He was not deceived. He ate knowing that it was wrong. She gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And so we arrive at the greatest tragedy of all time, of temptation's tactics resulting in a perfect strike as Satan and his whispers lead to both Adam and Eve disobeying the only prohibition given by God. Right? They had everything you could ever imagine. They had absolutely everything that you could dream of, but they wanted more. As James so wisely puts it in James 1.14 again, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Which leads to our final point. When temptation is embraced, sin is tragically conceived. When temptation is embraced, sin is tragically conceived. Verse 7, then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked, right? As we studied just a couple Sundays ago, just before this, right? In their, in their uh, holy matrimony, their, their one flesh union, right? They were naked and they were not ashamed, right? It was innocence, pure vulnerability. But here in just a few verses later, the eyes of them both are opened and they knew that they were naked, then it says they sewed fig leaves together and they made for themselves loincloths and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Friends, as we often call this the fall of man, I believe that terminology, the fall, can often just lead to misunderstanding. Just think about the act of falling Falling isn't something that you do willingly, right? right? It's the difference between somebody falling off a balcony and some, somebody choosing to fall off that balcony or choosing to, to jump over the balcony. That's the difference of what's going on here. 
right? We didn't just fall haphazardly between listening to the deception of Satan and Adam's willingness to not be deceived and then also to continue to take of the fruit. This was a willing choice on the part of mankind. Yes, Satan tempted, but this is man's part. And then as as the story goes on, you know that we're going to blame each other, right? Adam's going to blame the woman. She's going to blame Satan, right? James 1, 13 to 14 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Like we can't, even, we can't even blame it on God. This is all of our responsibility. Well, friends, what happened was not an unwilling fall, but rather, better said, it was a willing fall. It was a cosmic treason against God himself. These two knew the very goodness of God. They knew the very good completeness of his creation. And they knew that they already had such pure, innocent harmony and joy with God, communing together with him in his presence in the garden. And they knew that they only had one rule amidst so much freedom, and yet they chose it. Right? If we were in their shoes, and I know they probably didn't have shoes on, right? Didn't have any shoes on. If we were there, we would have done the same thing. If I was there, I would have done the same thing. If you were there, you would have done the same thing. That's who we are. That's our nature. We are given everything, but we want more. Especially when we're being told that God is holding out. Especially when we're being lied to. When we see what is forbidden, and we see it now as appealing, so we, like Eve, we take, we eat, and we commit cosmic treason against God in our sin. Right? As the knowledge of good and evil has now permeated their hearts, and it's already darkening their understanding, and it's staining their conscience. Right? Sin is now their default. Sin is now the predisposition. It's our propensity. And they begin to feel the repercussions of that. And the re- one of the repercussions we see so clearly here is the repercussion of shame. Right? It says that they knew that they were naked. They were ashamed of their nakedness. They knew this nakedness now in a fallen sense. They began to be ashamed of what was pure and beautiful And so in doing so, they try to cover themselves up. They try to cover their shame. I don't don't want you to see me and sin against me. So I'm going to cover myself up. My nakedness is now a bad thing. I need to cover it up. And so they sew leaves together and they, they cover themselves up. And then we see them hiding from God. As they hear the Lord God walking in the garden. Sorry. They hide. They try to isolate themselves from God's very presence. Their innocence has now evaporated, and guilt and fear has now gripped their hearts, and they cover and they hide from the Lord God. Notice. Notice the name for God there. They hide from the Lord God. Right? No longer referring to him as just general but going back to the the covenant name of God. We're going to look more closely at that next week. But as we close today, what we see for right now 
And what Adam and Eve are going to soon learn is that Satan was wrong. And God was right all along. That Satan's questions and lies and temptations, when they are embraced, did, did not lead to the promises that Satan was making. When you think of the lies of this world and you think of Satan, remember, Satan always overpromises and underdelivers. That these lies led them only to sin and to shame and to isolation and to death, just as God had promised which then spreads to all men because all sinned, right? In Adam, all die. We're gonna look at more of this next week. But friends, temptation is powerful. The word of God constantly reminds us to be fleeing from temptation because if we question the very word of God and if we doubt the very integrity of God, if we allow these things to then target the desires of our hearts, our hearts, right, are naturally deceitfully wicked. And if we come along and we embrace these things, friends, then sin is conceived. And then with that, shame and guilt and death, separation from God forever. And friends, the whole point of God revealing this to his congregation in the wilderness and for us as his congregation now to understand is for us to understand why the world is the way it is. Our world is groaning under the weight of our sin. Our sin has so stained our hearts and our universe, it is waiting, groaning for anticipation of redemption. And it's been waiting for that redemption that comes only through one. Only one could perfectly withstand temptation for us. The one who Hebrews 14 says, or 4.15 says, who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Friends, as we fail over and over to obey God, as we fail to keep his commandments, as Israel, right, hearing this directly from Moses, would continually fail over and over again to love and obey God, God knew all of this. He knew all of this was going to happen. That's why even before the fall, and even before the creation of the earth, God chose us in him, in Jesus. Right before the foundation of the world, Ephesians says. God knew that he's going to have to send himself, that he's going to have to send his son, he's going to have to send the God-man, Jesus Christ, to prevail where we failed. So that he could have victory where we fall short. If you remember the temptation of Jesus in the desert, remember how he was so personally tempted by Satan himself for 40 days in the wilderness. Remember how in his extreme anguish and hunger and suffering, Jesus ultimately prevailed, right? As he was led into the wilderness. Right? This is reflective of the Jews in the wilderness. As he was led by the tempter, Satan himself, in Christ's hunger, tempts him to, to turn these stones into bread, right? But how does Jesus respond? He responds, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
right? The very words God gave his people in the desert through Moses. And then when Satan takes him up to the temple and puts him on top of the temple to test his integrity, Jesus answers him again. It is written, you shall not put the Lord God to the test. And then as Satan takes Jesus to the highest mountain and promises to give him all the kingdoms of the world and, and for Jesus just to bow down to Satan and to worship him, how did Jesus respond for the third time? He said, be gone, Satan, for it is written. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. When you see Jesus say, it is written three times, doesn't that just elevate all the more how, how Satan attacks the very word of God? Temptation first strikes at the very word of God. But Christ himself prevailed by the word of God. It is written, he says, he did not succumb to the temptations of the world. He did not put his father to the test. He did not listen and bow down to Satan. No, he kept his promises. Jesus prevailed where we failed. He is the pure, he is the perfect Israel who conquered all temptation. And he's experienced every temptation that we face, yet without sin. This is the ongoing, beautiful story of saving love, that because of our sin, because we stray, because we're prone to wander, right? Lord, we feel it. For our sake, God made him, God made Jesus to be sin, to take the punishment for us, so that he is the one who would be judged guilty, he was the one himself who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So friends, Adam and Eve couldn't do it. They couldn't face temptation and come out victorious. No, they needed the right victory of another person. They needed the victory of Christ. And so does all the world. When we see the name here, Yahweh Elohim, we think of God, the creator, but God, our covenant keeper, perfectly fulfilled in Jesus Christ, our Lord. He is our savior. He is our king. He is the very word of God. He is the one who prevailed and will prevail until the tempter is finally crushed once and for all. And he's coming back to take sinners like you and I who are covered by his righteousness. He's gonna take us home and he's gonna continue us until that day by his prevailing grace until we arrive in the new garden, the new heavens and the new earth, the eternal Eden forever. We see just glimpses of the power of temptation. We're going to talk more about chapter 3 in the Sundays to come, the intricacies of the fall, the fallout of the fall, the curses of the fall, but the answer from the very beginning is always Jesus Christ. When we look at verse 9 next week, it's going to start, but God. And when you see but God, you see the gospel powerfully at work. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for giving us insight, spiritual insight to the very beginning, but even more than that, spiritual insight into our hearts, our hearts that so readily want to go astray, our hearts that want to, want to be like you in the sense that we want to be God, we want to determine our own way, we want to ball up our fists and go our own way. 
And God, from the very beginning, as we may scoff and look at Adam and Eve and say, what are they doing? They had everything. If we stepped into their place, we would have done the exact same thing. But we are so grateful, Lord, that even before the foundation of the world, you chose us in him, in Jesus Christ, to have redemption by his blood. We're so thankful that even though we we may look at the beginning and see how we fell so short, Christ came. He fulfilled the law perfectly. He lived life perfectly, all without sin. He was tempted in every which way that we were without sin. And then he went to the cross and was nailed to that cross for our sin, judged guilty as you then judged us righteousness because of his righteousness. We praise you, God. We thank you for insight into these things. We pray that you would continue to grow our faith all by your grace. We love you, God, and thank you for this Sunday. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.